Today's sermon comes from Luke 2, 8 through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Have you ever been to a, maybe a family reunion or a class reunion and you leave, maybe just a gathering of old friends you haven't seen in a while, and you leave and you go, wow, he is a different person. Or, or wow, that's not the same person I talked to three, four years ago. Right? Just dramatic change. In this passage, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but there is drastic change with the shepherds. Verse 9, they're filled with great fear. Verse 20, they're glorifying and praising God and full of joy. And so you say, what happened between verse 9 and that word fear there is not meaning the healthy fear we see in the Bible of reverence. Okay, that is, we're scared to death. Okay, that's, that's terror fear, right? How, how from verse 9 of full of fear do they get to verse 20, where they're praising God and glorifying God and full of joy? Dramatic change. You say, what happened in between? Well, there was an announcement, an announcement of a child who was born, and then they saw that child who had arrived, Jesus' birth. So then the question becomes, how does, as we celebrate Christmas, how does Jesus' birth transform fear into worship? How does that happen? We see it here, we're gonna unpack it. And to answer that, we're gonna ask two questions. What causes fear? And then what transforms fear into worship? So let's start with what, what causes fear? Why are the shepherds so afraid? Well, it says, because the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of God was in their midst. And you say, okay, why did that cause fear? It wasn't always that way, right? Think back to Genesis chapter one and two, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and the glory of God is overwhelming, it's all around. They were in the midst of the glory of God and it didn't produce fear. It produced joy. In fact, they were drawn to the glory of God. It was in them, it was their life. It was something they treasured, right? It was anything but fear. You say, so what happened? 
that now we see the glory of God appear to the shepherds and they are scared. Well, there's something called Genesis 3 that happened after Genesis 1 and 2. And we learn in Genesis 3 that the Satan got into the garden and he began to speak lies into Adam and Eve. And you say, what is the lie? The lie he spoke to Adam and Eve was basically this. You need to be in charge of your own life. If you're not in charge of your own life, if somebody else is in charge of your life, especially God, you will not be happy. God's not good, and he's holding out on you. That's all of the lie that Satan speaks. And so Adam and Eve believe it, and then they begin to assert their independence from God and seek a life of happiness apart from him. Now, what happened after that fundamental shift? Genesis 3, 8 through 10, listen. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So far, nothing different. God did that every day. He was with them, he walked with them, he talked with them. The glory was all over the place, his glory. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself from worship to fear. Right? Just the opposite of what we see with the shepherds in Luke 2. And there it's fear <laughs> to worship. And this fundamental shift, we learn a lot about what happened and why the glory of God in Luke 2 produced fear and why God's presence in Genesis 3 produced fear in Adam and Eve. You see, what changed from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3? God didn't change. God's glory didn't change. Adam and Eve changed. Sin and rebellion entered their heart and produced fear. So let's explore this. What, what causes fear? We're going to look at two reasons. One, an awareness of sin. Two, an awareness of inadequacy. Right? Let's start with the awareness of sin. Right? Before Genesis 3, there was no fear. There was no sin. There was no awareness of sin because there was no sin. They had a perfect relationship with God. And then sin enters the world enters their hearts, and suddenly now the glory of God or the presence of God produces fear. They were keenly aware, Adam and Eve, of their sin. Okay, it would be like a, a thief in the middle of the night who is you know, robbing a house. Uh, what would produce fear in that thief? Right, a, a police car with a spotlight coming. Right? That would be something to run from or to hide from. Right? Why? Because that thief doesn't want to get caught. There's awareness of, of wrongdoing. And so that thief fears right, the police, the cop car coming with a spotlight. There's fear because there's an awareness of wrongdoing. There's an awareness of sin. That's what happened in the garden. It's what happens throughout the scriptures. Probably most notably, we see it in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around Isaiah. And what did he do? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
You see, there's an awareness of sin before God that produces fear. Now, this is, real, this is really important. The only way that the glory of God or the presence of God produces fear is if you're really dealing with the real God. If you have constructed a God in your mind or in your heart that exists to serve you, uh, to encourage you, to pat you on the back, no matter what decision you make in life, if you've constructed that kind of God that will never contradict you, but only encourage you whatever decision you make, then you, it will, that God will never produce fear because that kind of man-made God can never bring awareness of sin. Only the, the real God, the one true God, an encounter with the real God will produce what we see in Genesis 3, Isaiah 6, Luke 2 with the shepherds, where the real holy and righteous God appears to you and you go, woe is me. I have sin. I want you to think about the difference between a, uh, a security guard in Target and a Jacksonville Sheriff's Office police officer. Now think about this. And this is with all due respect to Target security guards. And I mean that. Okay. When you go into Target and you pass a Target security guard, it doesn't do much. That presence doesn't do much. You're not on heightened alert. It doesn't produce necessarily fear. Why? Because you know that he has no real authority, doesn't carry a gun. Quite different, though, when you come into the presence of a JSO police officer. You're on heightened alert. You slow down on the road. You follow the rules. You think twice about stealing something, right? Why? Because a JSO police officer comes with authority and a gun, and it can, and can severely alter your, your life if you do wrong, right? When you encounter the one true God, the real God that has authority, that has power, who defines himself, not what you make up, but what he defines of himself, when you encounter that God, it will produce fear because of your awareness of your sin, awareness of wrongdoing. So, so what causes fear? First of all, the awareness of sin, that, that deep down awareness that I have sin, I am wrong before a holy and righteous God. Second, it's an awareness of inadequacy. Now here, I want to address not so much the, the vertical fear before God, but the horizontal fear that is the result of being separated or alienated from God separated and alienated from God. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden before Genesis 3, perfect relationship with God, there was no fear. Once sin entered their hearts and they believed a lie that said, we're gonna go live our own lives, be master of our own lives, be in control of our own lives, that when that shift took place, there was fear. And it, it prompts the question, why does, does independence from God, separation from God produce fear? Well, think about what produces fear in your life. Fear of rejection, maybe fear of death, uh, fear of the future. Right now with what's spinning in our world, fear of evil. 
Think about what Adam and Eve were tempted towards and therefore what you and I are tempted towards, right? That independence from God. I will control my own life. The reason it produces fear, think about fear of rejection. Why is there fear of rejection? Because ultimately you know you can't control what other people think of you. You can't control that. And so there's fear. Or think about fear of death. Ultimately, you can't control that disease that comes to your body that maybe leads to death. It's out of your control. Think about the future. Ultimately, you know I don't, I don't have control of the future. Think about evil. I, I mean, the victims in San Bernardino or, or uh, Paris. Or, you don't have control over evil, over evil. And so that produces fear. That that's where the fear comes from. See, deep down, if you're really honest with your heart, you and I know that we are unqualified to be in control and in charge of our own lives. That we're deeply unqualified to be master of our own lives. And that produces a great amount of fear. Think about somebody that you know, maybe in your office, maybe you've personally experienced this. That person that gets uh, promoted to a job they're not qualified for, they don't have the skill set. What characterizes someone that gets put into a position, a job that they're unqualified for? What characterizes that person? A deep amount of insecurity, a deep amount of fear, right? Because they know not qualified for this. And then what's the scariest moment for someone in that position? It's performance review time, right? When the boss comes into the office and says, I am going to evaluate your work. There's a great amount of fear. You see, we have asserted our independence from God. And when we broke from him, when Adam and Eve broke from him and by inheriting their sin, we broke from him as well. We took on a job we were not qualified for. And because of that, there is a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety. And I'll say that. If you're going, I'm really not fearful, I'm not connecting here. Anxiety, close twin. So if you're not fearful, you worry, you're anxious a lot, basically the same thing. We're not qualified for the job. And so fear and anxiety is the result. Now, let's go to the second question. What transforms fear into worship. First, we're going to see as we look at what happened between verse 9 and verse 20 of the shepherds going from fear to worship, what happened. First, the good news of a Savior. Angel of the Lord says, fear not, right? There's a command there to the shepherds, fear not. You say, well, why? Verse 10, for I bring you good news of great joy. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Think about it. The, the shepherds are scared to death for all the reasons that I just described. They're keenly aware of their inadequacy, an Isaiah-type response in the presence of the glory of God. And they're probably thinking, trembling with fear of punishment, we are guilty, we're sinful, a holy and righteous God has just appeared to us through an angel. The sentence, sentence is pronounced, the consequences are coming, punishment is here, and what does the angel say? No, no, don't fear. Good news, 
A Savior is here. A Savior. He hasn't come to condemn and judge you. He's come to save you. John 3, 17, the verse following probably the most popular verse in the Bible. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, it's good news because a savior comes. You say, great, so it's like a rescue. It's like a a search helicopter that flies over the ocean and finds the person dead in the water and, and puts a rope down and picks them up and pulls them out. That's great. And I go, well, that certainly can picture salvation, but I think there's a more accurate story of what really uh, happens when the Savior comes that makes it joyful and really good news. Now, I'm going to share an illustration. I'm going to make a little bit of a caveat here at the front, okay? I am not sharing this to say this is necessarily what you should do with your son and daughter if this were to happen, okay? I'm sharing this so that you get a picture of what it means that there's good news that a Savior has come and what it might look like. Imagine that you take uh, your dad's nice car out on a joyride without his permission. So I'm speaking here to maybe teenagers or college students, or maybe this has happened in your life, or you can imagine it. You take your father's car out on a joyride without his permission, and you total it and run it into a ditch. Your dad finds out, he comes and he appears on the scene. And he comes to the the top of the ditch where the car's totaled in the ditch, you're still in the car, and you see your dad. What are you feeling? Maybe great fear that dad's wrath is about to come on me for what I just did. Maybe a sense of great joy that my father is here to rescue me. Maybe a little bit of both. Your dad comes down into the ditch. He gets you out of the car, gives you a big hug, rejoices that he has found you. For the next year of his life, he works overtime to save up enough money to get another car. And when he saves up enough money, he gets a car for you to drive and continues as he has the past year to walk to work. Now, if that happened, you would be undone by your father's love. The judgment or the payment for what went wrong wasn't just swept under the carpet. He just took care of it. He paid it and was overwhelmingly gracious with you. You see, you and I have stolen the image of God. God made you. He created you for himself. And you and I, as we learned in Genesis 3, ran away and said, this is my life. I'm going to live it how I want to live it. I'm going to take it on a joyride. And we've all wrecked it in the ditch. And when God appears, he appears to rescue and save you. Oh, and there is judgment for what you've done. But guess what? 
he places that judgment on his son Jesus instead of you. That's why the angel can say to the shepherds, there's good news of great joy. And you'll only understand that if you understand the depth that you have offended God with your sin and with stealing his image. To understand the salvation, the love he has for you to rescue you and place the judgment on his son. That, that will transform fear into worship. Second, what transforms fear into worship? Peace with God. The angels sing in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, interesting to note here, it doesn't say peace for everyone. It's not automatic. Jesus' birth into the world doesn't automatically just grant everyone peace. It's to those with whom he is pleased. Now, a couple questions to ask. First, why do you need peace with God? There's an assumption here, if the angels come and announce that peace has come, there's an assumption that you don't have peace with God. In fact, Romans 8, 7 says this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That word hostile there, it it, it can get translated uh, enmity or, or hatred. And you may say, wow, that's strong. I don't hate God. I don't hate God. And yet what it says here is that you and I in our natural self, that's what of the flesh means, just in your natural self apart from God, right? there's hatred towards God. There's a war with God. You say, I'm not quite getting that. Remember what we've looked at in Genesis 3. What was Adam and Eve's first move of rebellion? It was, we're going to assert our independence from God and take control of our lives. If you know someone, if you know a child who is at odds with his parents, maybe has moved out of the house and has not talked to his parents in a long time, won't call them, won't see them, right? You would say there's a problem there, right? There's, there's hostility. There's a war going on there. That, that child has asserted his independence and has nothing to do with them. It's the same thing that we have done with God. We've asserted our independence, and because of that, there's hostility. But there's, there's a war going on there. There's not peace. And this presents itself in a couple different ways. Okay? Everyone here has asserted their independence from God. It may look different. If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm, I'm more of an irreligious person. Maybe I'm not typically a churchgoer. Uh, I'm not about organized religion, right? That person, the, the independence looks much more overt. It's, you're not gonna find me in church. You're not gonna find me around religious stuff. I'm gonna live my life how I want, wild and crazy. I'm gonna do what I wanna do, right? That's asserting independence. The religious person can do the same thing. It looks different. I worship, I pray, I go to church so that I get what I want from God. That's no different, right? Ultimately, it's, they're both are independently and both are asserting their independence against God or from God. It just looks different, right? That we're all asserting independence. And what happens in both of those situations is that deep down, you can't stand the idea of God being in control of your life or anybody being in control of your life. 
You want to be in control of your own life, and that is the war. That's the hostility that exists between mankind and God. So how do you obtain peace with God? Look at verse 14. It says, God, peace is given to those whom, with whom God is pleased. How do you please God? How do you please God? Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God comes through faith. It comes through faith. Here's why it's impossible to please God apart from faith. Let me start with the, the, the irreligious person for a second. See, the irreligious person says, I don't need the church. I don't need organized religion. I don't need God. In fact, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you, you believe this, that Christianity is a crutch. That faith is a crutch for weak people. And so that person cannot please God because that person says, I'm in control. Or take the, take the religious person. I've said it before just recently, but the, the difference between faith or the opposite of faith is works, right? And don't you see that if you are operating in the mindset that I am going to do what's right, be good enough, follow the rules, I'm going to do all of that, right, somehow to obtain favor from God, do you, you see what you're doing? What you're effectively saying is, God, I don't need you to get back to the garden. I don't need you to find happiness. I don't need you to get back to you. I can do it on my own. I can be good enough. The war is still raging. There's still hostility. You're, you're, you're asserting your independence by saying, I can get back to you. I can be good enough. And the answer is no. You're still operating with the same rugged independence. See, faith says, I can't get back to the garden on my own. Faith says, I can't climb the ladder to God. Faith says, I can't be good enough. Faith says, I am helpless. That I am helpless. And that Jesus Christ pleased the Father perfectly when he lived a perfect life. And that when I attach myself to him by faith, that I too come under the pleasure of God, that he's pleased with me. Why does peace with God take away fear? Why does peace with God take away fear? We'll wrap up this section because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, when you come to Christ and you realize all that I've just shared about what Christ has done and you have peace with God, there's no fear of punishment. Right? When, when God shows up at the top of the ditch, <laughs> there's no fear of punishment. You understand that Jesus has taken all my punishment. There's no fear of rejection. There's no fear of rejection because you no longer need the approval of others. The one opinion in the universe that counts is, I am pleased with you. Right? Peace with God takes away fear of death because you know, no matter what happens, that you will be with your Father, your Maker for eternity. Peace with God takes away fear of the future because you know that your future is in the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. Peace with God takes away the fear of evil because you know that nothing can come into your life without first passing through the hand 
of your father. What transforms fear into worship? We've looked at the good news of a savior, peace with God, and finally a peacemaking community. It's interesting when you look at the rest of the story of the shepherds after they see Jesus, they start to share and everybody is in wonder and awe as they hear the shepherds share the story of what the angel told them. Right, that when you have peace with God, you become a peacemaker. There's no peace with God apart from Jesus, and there is no peace on earth without there first being peace with God. And once you become reconciled to your maker, you become a peacemaker. Because now, when you have peace with God, you don't have to posture. You don't have to... um, operate with this pride. You don't have to protect your image or protect your reputation. You don't have to prove yourself. You can swallow your pride because you're right with God. And that's where your happiness comes from. And now in humility, you become a peacemaker. You think about what causes conflict and war. What's the, what is at the very core of it? It's pride. It's self-righteousness. It's I'm better than you. And so I'm going to kill you at the end of it. When you become a peacemaker, right, all of that pride is taken away. And you become a humble servant. You know, as we've talked about a lot in the past two to three weeks with what's happened, there's a, there's a lot of evil in our world. ISIS at the point of it. Infiltration of ISIS into the states. What happened in California, right? School shootings. Every, everybody's on high alert. And this idea of peace on earth is actually very relevant right now. But the problem is when you look at what are the solutions to peace on earth, right? There's a broad spectrum, but I'll name kind of the two extreme camps. The one camp is pacifism, right? Don't fight, don't go to war, right? Just, just be a, a person of peace and that'll fix everything. On the other side, it's go destroy evil, right? Go destroy evil. Unleash the military and go destroy evil. Now, now both of those, right, extreme versions, want the same thing, right, peace on earth. And both can find some biblical warrant, all right? This side over here, pacifism would say, well, Jesus did say turn the other cheek, right? Be a person of peace. Over here, God established the government, right? Romans 13, to restrain evil, right? So, you, but both of those are missing the war that already happened. And it was a gruesome war. It all culminated in about 24 hours, nearly 2,000 years ago. When Jesus was led to the cross and when he hung on the cross, it was gruesome. There was bloodshed. There was hatred. There was anger. All of it poured out on the Son of God. It was a, it was war for those 24 hours. And it was that war that accomplished peace on earth. And it's that war, and it's the only one that can accomplish peace on earth and peace in your heart. That Jesus fought evil for you. That Jesus fought your sin for you. That Jesus fought your brokenness for you. And what it landed him was a bloodied, torn up body that died. 
And when you understand that, and you believe what he's done for you, your heart is flooded with a tremendous amount of peace. And you understand that peace on earth will only come when there is vertical peace because all of the war you see in our world is a product of the deeper war between mankind and God. That that vertical war that we read about, that hostility towards God, is what fleshes out horizontally in all the war and the terror you see as a result of it. And so none of that's gonna be fixed until first there's peace with God. And so it starts with you and it starts in your heart. And maybe for you this Christmas, maybe this is the first time that you've really heard this and you've realized that you're at war with God. And maybe you're realizing for the first time There is a way for that war to be ended, and that's me surrendering my heart to Jesus Christ. That we would be a people of peace, making peace, waging peace in our world. Let's pray.